Ladies and gentlemen, let's join Matt Griffin on the field for the pregame ceremonies presented by WestJet. Mesdames, Messieurs, nous avons le plaisir d'honorer la meilleure équipe du baseball majeur en 1994, les Expos de Montréal. Let's welcome Youpi! And now let's welcome members of this memorable team, the catcher number two, Tim Spear. Third baseman number five, Sean Berry. Outfielder number seven, Sweet Lou Frazier. Outfielder number nine, Marquise Grissom. The shortstop number 12, Jake Robinson. 
good moment baseball universe what is up it's your boy jake the snake robinson from the let's talk baseball podcast network half man half podcast machine back in the captain kirk chair shields down photons up ready to engage on our weekly digital audio baseball show that i like to call backwards k-pot where we collect ball players and their stories it's available on all major platforms wherever you listen to your pods or you can visit the show website at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com please remember to follow subscribe comment rate me as you see fit on apple or spotify i ain't skirt and if you want to you can contact the show by email backwardskpod at gmail.com. And speaking of email, I got one from Neil in Michigan who says, uh, I've been listening to all your shows and they're great. I noticed last week on the Fenway show you called Tiger Stadium Briggs Field. It was actually Briggs Stadium before it became Tiger Stadium. Uh, Love the show and I'm just nitpicking, busting your balloons. And you know what? He's right. And I appreciate him for calling balls and strikes on me. I'm a human being, which means I make mistakes sometimes. I even think at some point I said Yankee bought the Yankees mistakenly. So, I mean, you know, I'm human. I make mistakes. I'm dealing with a lot of information I'm trying to give to you. Uh, And, Neil, you're absolutely right. I want to thank you for listening to the show and thank you for your email. And I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you very much. As a matter of fact, I'm really pleased with the way the show is growing at this point. Um, I've told you before, I will never Patreon you or crowdsource you, uh, my awesome listeners. I'm not going to sit there with my hat in hand for a buck here and there. I prefer to keep my content free, if that's okay with y'all. And the best way for me to do that is for you, the audience, to interact with the show through uh, comments, likes, follows, subscriptions, and downloads. And, uh... I do have some things in the works that are, you know, going to help me grow this show and, you know, give a better presentation even. And I I think that I'm going to keep some of those things close to the vest. I got a really big thing coming uh, as soon as we can figure out out the technicalities of it all. Uh, I got some really big things on the way. But I'm really happy to uh, be here and present you with this show. And I'm enjoying the show's trajectory at this point. So... With all that shit out of the way, I'm ready to get after it this week here on Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Today, we're going to be taking a uh, look under the hood and performing a podcast autopsy, so to say, on the Montreal Expos, specifically in regards to their amazing but unsatisfying 1994 season. Now, before I begin with this post-mortem dissection, I realize that 2024 will mark the 20th year anniversary that the Expos left Montreal for the nation's capital. And that means almost a whole generation of seam heads have been removed from Expos baseball, which kind of makes me question my mortality. I mean, how fast these seasons have flown by. And, yeah, but look, you know, that's another story for another pot. Now, The Expos, they always fascinated me as a kid. Whenever I had the opportunity to watch the Expos on the game of the week, I couldn't help myself from being thrilled by just the peculiar nature of that team. 
Uh, the PA guy spoke in two different languages, French and English. They didn't play in Olympic Stadium. They played in Stade Olympique, which uh, was a dump. But the fans didn't care. And in the late 70s, early 80s, it was packed to the retractable roof that never worked. Uh, it had a running track around the field as a warning track. They had red, white, and blue tricolor hats. I mean, who has tricolor hats? They made that shit work, baby. The the city is predominantly French-Canadian. But they had a natural love and appreciation for German oompa pants. And, you know, it was totally normal to see Quebecers in the stands singing Happy Wanderer with guys in the, you know, in Lederhosen playing accordions, trumpets, clarinets, and drums. I, I, I... you know, it was just one of those things as a kid that was just so confusing to me. I, like, I thought they were French, but they got like German oompa bands hanging out in the stands. Literally in the stands. And as a red-blooded American boy, I have to admit, I was always mesmerized by those outfield walls. You know, they had the home run distance in meters. <laughs> I, I, I remember it was 99 meters to left. <laughs> I mean, what the hell does that mean? I, I remember asking my mom, hey, hey, Ma, look at these crazy Canadians with the uh, metric distance on their walls. I, who the hell uses the goofy metric system? Oh, everybody? Besides us? Okay, okay, fair enough. It's still bizarre, Ma. So, I was a big Expos fan. They were colorful, they were fun, they were, they were different. It wasn't anything like watching, say, the Giants or the Braves or the Reds. They were totally different. And I know I picked up on that early in my love affair with baseball. Montreal has always been a baseball city. Going back to the 40s, the late 30s, when the Dodgers AAA farm team settled down there and became the Monarchs. And they were pushing talent like Duke Snyder, Roy Campanella, Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, just to name a few. And, of course, I'm not dismissing Les Habitants, the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. The Habs hold an almost mythological grip on that city. They are Olympians. And when I say Olympians, they are gods. They're, you know, guys like Guy Lafleur are deities. They are gods who walked among humans, who lorded from above. They're on a whole nother statue. But the Expos, well, the Expos were of the people. And they would become family as equals. And immediately after the Monarchs folded in 1960, the political leaders of Montreal began a grassroots movement to bring Major League Baseball to the city. In 1968, MLB awarded expansion teams to San Diego, who would become the Padres, and the first Major League franchise outside the United States in Montreal. The city had a voice in the team name. Les Expos was chosen by fan vote, as was the design of the logo. And I, you know, I still hear today, like, that is a really cool hat, but what is that logo? Well, you know, the logo is kind of like a hidden thing, like with the Milwaukee Brewers, when the, the old school Brewers... Hats where it's an M and a B and it looks like a glove, right? Well, 
the Expos is kind of like that too. If you look at the Montreal Expos logo, and you got to really look at it, you see an L, you see an E, you see an M, and you see a B. And that stands for Le Montreal Baseball. And again, it was just another weird, fascinating thing that I loved about that team. Now, the name. <laughs> just another thing that fascinated, fascinated me as a kid about that team. Uh, I can remember clear as a crystal at eight years old, 1979, asking my pop, what is an expo? Well, Snake and Expo is known as international registered exhibitions as a global gathering of nations who are dedicated to finding solutions to the pressing challenges of the day by offering engaging and immersive activities with universal themes. <laughs> yeah, that guy was a pisser. I mean, he didn't know anything about baseball, but this he knows. And I remember hearing that mouthful of words and thinking, okay, so, so they're named after... A fair? Man, I fucking love this team. They are so weird. And my dad was right. They named themselves after hosting the 1967 World's Expo in Canada. And what a horribly, horribly unique name. I fucking love it. Now, the first challenge posed to the city after being awarded the Expos was, where are they going to play? which in retro hindsight should have been an early red flag on a problem that would haunt the club throughout their 37-year history. The undaunted civic leaders of Montreal decided to turn a municipal stadium named Jerry Park into a Major League Baseball stadium, albeit barely. They rushed and they pushed through the, the bitter Quebec winter to have the stadium somewhat ready by opening day. Uh, that opening day, the owner of the team could be seen helping volunteers unfold chairs as all the seats at Jerry Park weren't quite in place. The stadium was certainly less than ideal. If you played twilight games, uh, play had to be suspended for 20 minutes because the first baseman, second baseman, and right fielder, they couldn't see through the glare of the sun that was shining directly in their eyes. And instead of chasing hit balls, they were always blindly ducking for cover whenever someone hit the ball. So every day, if you were in that twilight, that witching hour moment, they would have to stop the game for about 20 minutes. But from day one, that city fell in love with their team. The Montreal Gazette headline screamed the next day, L'Expos de Montreal nos amour, which means the Montreal Expos are loves. The fans also fell in love with their first player on that 1969 inaugural season. Le Grand Laurence, Rusty Staub, would become the team's first superstar going to the All-Star game three years in a row. The team stunk. The stadium wasn't ideal, but the Expo fans were prepared for that. Their true source of pride and French-Canadian love was bestowed onto the whole team, but especially the big gender over here. Staub was determined to ingratiate himself amongst the players who were treating him like a Canadian's hockey star. And he began to learn how to speak French because he was embarrassed that he couldn't speak baseball to kids or order food. And 
I mean, they just fell in love with him, especially for that. They loved Staub literally from day one because once they saw the Grand Orange putting in the effort, he was family. Forever a sports icon of Montreal. In mob terms, he was a made man in Montreal, and no one could touch him. But, and another red flag harbinger of the Expo's future, Montreal unexpectedly traded Legrand Lorange to the New York Mets for shortstop Tom Foley, first baseman Mike Jorgensen, and outfielder Teddy Singleton in 1972. And the local media was stunned. The fans were distraught. And even Rusty Staub admitted it was the only time in his baseball career that he was caught off guard and unprepared. In his four years as an expo, Rusty Staub smashed 81 home runs, 284 RBI, 531 hits, 290 runs, 896 total bases, 149 OPS plus, and a 295, 402, 497 slash. And this would be the first superstar piece sold off by the Expos, but he would be far, far, far from the last. In fact, while the Expos failed to post a winning record in the team's first decade, the minor league system was beginning to bear fruit with dynamic future Hall of Famers. By 1980, by 1980, Tim Raines was establishing himself as arguably the second greatest leadoff hitter in baseball history. Andre Dawson was like this N.O. version of Dave Winfield. I mean, just an amazing blend of speed, power, athleticism. And then it was catcher Gary Carter, the 80s version of a Johnny Bench, a bona fide cleanup hitter with impeccable footwork, a great arm, and just an outstanding defensive skill set. And as many of you know, Gary Carter was always nicknamed the Kid. But a lot of you probably do not know why he was nicknamed the Kid. And I'm going to tell you why. So, the uh, Expos used to have a catcher named Barry Foote. And, uh, you know, he played for him for like five years, 230 hitter, somewhere in there. And back in like 77, 78, Barry Foote would be out on the field before practice. And uh, Coach Dan Carruthers would just mercilessly tease Barry Foote. Every time he saw Barry Foote, he'd be like, hey, Footy, Footy, did you hear about the kid last night? Kid hit two home runs, man. Hey, Footy, Footy. Hear about the kid last night? An RBI with three doubles. <laughs> He's coming, baby. And every day, mercilessly riding Barry Foote. And you can find him in baseball reference, B-F-O-O-T-E. That once Gary Carter got to the Major League uh, ball club, everybody was like, oh, you're the kid. You're the kid. And that is how Gary Carter became the kid. By 1980, the Expos came in second place by one game to the eventual 1980 world champion Philadelphia Phillies. Now, they literally just ran out of time. And remember that in regards to 1994. 
They lost out to the eventual world champion Philadelphia Phillies by one game in 1980. So going into 1981, the Expos were a competent team. They are built on speed, power, defense, and pitching. Unfortunately, the 1981 season experienced a work stoppage, something we're all, all aware of right now. And that 81 season would be split into two seasons, and the playoffs would be expanded in two rounds. I think I talked about this on the Yankees show when we did the George Steinbrenner show. You want to check that out. The Expos would dispatch the defending champs, uh, Phillies, in the first round, which then left a best-of-five series against the Dodgers for the right to play in the World Series. And the Dodgers and Expos would split the first four games. So, with the series in a deadlock tie, the stage would be set at Stadia Olympique for an NLCS decider on Monday, October 19th, 1981. A date that will forever live in infamy in the city of Montreal. With the game tied at two going into the top of the ninth, the atmosphere of the stadium was electric. Expos uh, manager Jim Fanning was dealing with a fatigue bully and an injured closer. So he decides to send teammates Steve Rogers to the mound to deal with the Dodgers' bats in the ninth. The first batter, Steve Garvey. First pitch swinging, he pops out weakly to second baseman, Rodney Scott. The second batter, uh, Ron Say. He massages the count in his favor, 3-1, and and he hits a missile to left field. Reigns going back, still going back, still going back. And Tim Reigns on the warning track, 97 meters away, (laughs) catches the ball for the second out. And really, that second out should have been a red flag of things to come as Rick Monday strode to the plate. Now, a determined Steve Rogers knew he was off. He would say later that him and the kid were on the same page strategically, but Rogers, who has always been forthcoming about Blue Monday, he just couldn't execute. And Rick Monday, like say before him, worked the count in his favor, three and one, and this happened. The outfield is deep toward right. Rodney Scott, the second baseman, way out beyond the line, as you can see, trying to cut off the hole between first and second.
Aaron Rick Monday. A home run over the center field fence, and the Dodgers lead 2-1. to one. And that was it. The Expos fans became dead quiet after that. Uh, the city morgue had more life than Stadia Olympique after that hit. Rick Monday was a career 167 hitter versus Rogers before that blast. And his name to this day is reviled in that city. Much like you know, Kristen Leitner is in the state of Kentucky. Uh, the winners are long, and Expos fans never forget. And that would be the closest the Expos would ever get to the World Series. Now, as the team progressed through the 80s, they would eventually say goodbye to Andre Dawson and Tim Raines. But the real kick in the gut of Rusty Stahl proportions was watching their hero, the kid, Gary Carter, being traded to the Mets for Hubie Brooks. And it was during these mid to late 80s that the Montreal media began calling them Expos University. The thought being that young studs would do their time in Montreal for four years before moving on to a more financially stable situation. And while the Major League product was terrible going into the 90s, there was some homegrown kush on that farm ready to blossom. Excuse me. <coughs> I need to get some water there. After a 17-20 start in 1992, they fired Tom Reynolds, the manager, and they replaced him with bench coach Philippe Alou. Alou and uh, the GM, Dan Duquette, they would devise a strategy that they felt would have the Expos competing by 1994. And actually, Montreal was ready a year earlier than their 1994 projection. Now, if you remember earlier, I told you to keep the memory of how the Expos just ran out of time versus the eventual world champion Phillies in 1980 before the strike season of 1981. Well, the same thing pretty much happens to the Expos here in 93. The Expos would again just run out of time to catch the eventual NL champions that year, the Philadelphia Phillies. The core nucleus of the 93 Expos was a trio of 26-year-old studs, Moise Alou, Marquise Grissom, and future Hall of Famer Larry Walker. They were also buoyed by rookie second baseman Delano DeShields, who had a fine freshman season in 1993. In 123 games, uh, DeShields had a slash of 295, 389, 372. 43 stolen bases, 75 runs scored. The pitching staff was anchored by El Presidente, Dennis Martinez. He was the ace of the staff. And Denny, who had resurrected his career after almost drinking his way out of the league years early while playing for Baltimore. Now the 39-year-old was a fan favorite, throwing no hitters and becoming a leader of this young Expos starting rotation. In 1993, Denny went 15-9 with a 3.85 ERA, a 109 ERA+, plus, and a 1.22 whip. And again, the Expos just ran out of time in 93. Uh, if only Montreal had one more week of games that year, they would have overtaken the Philadelphia Phillies 
<laughs> and they probably would have played the Toronto Blue Jays in the World Series that year in the first All-Canadian uh, World Series. They won 30 of their last 39 games of the 93 season. And they still came up short by three games. So, butterfly effect moment. What if the Expos had made the World Series that year and it was an all-Canadian series? I got to think, that would have saved baseball in Montreal. That would have been the thing that would have galvanized civic leaders to get the stadium done. It could have been special. It could have saved the team. And, you know, Montreal, Toronto, they're fire and ice. So that would have been a great, great, great World Series. The expectations for Montreal going into 1994 was, quite honestly, was at an all-time high. There was a thought that this might be the greatest Expos team ever and that the time is now. However, after watching Dennis, Dennis Martinez both the Cleveland in the offseason, the brain trust of Duquette and Alou, they needed to figure out how to uh, replace Dennis Martinez's talent on that bump. And Philippe Alou began pitching the idea of trading for Pedro Martinez and bringing him into the fold. I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer, right? But Pedro was not yet the polished Hall of Famer that we regard him as today. He was a 21-year-old wonder kid, talented but wild pitcher with a loose cannon control, who at this time was already looked at as simply Ramon's little brother. But Felipe had coached versus the fearless hurler in the offseason in the Dominican League, and he was chomping at the bit to replace Denny with the right-hander. During Pedro's two years for the Dodgers, he went 10-6 with a 2.58 ERA, 67 games, three starts, 123 strikeouts, and 115 innings pitched. Uh, that came out to a 9.9 strikeouts per nine. He had a 147 ERA plus and a 1.22 whip. And even with those impressive numbers, the Dodgers were so enamored with his brother Ramon they, they couldn't see the forest from the trees with Pedro. They considered him talent, but way too skinny to handle the rigors of being a major league pitcher. So in a swift and decisive action, in order to save the 94 season, Dan Duquette trades Delano DeShields to Los Angeles for Pedro Martinez. Now, sitting here in 22, you think, man, DeShields for Pedro, what a steal. But in 1994, it looked like the Expos got duped, uh, you know, according to these national and local sports scribes. Most members of the media, they could not understand why they would trade a young stud for a pitcher that the Dodgers think is physically weak. Montreal Gazette sports writer quipped that the Expos traded Martinez so they wouldn't have to spend money on a new uniform, suggesting that you know, he could just take Dennis Martinez's uniform, and that's really why they traded for him, because the Expos were too cheap to, to buy another uniform. And the deal was widely criticized by the pundits, but Felipe knew what he had, and from day one, he was telling people that Pedro would one day be a Hall of Famer. Felipe Alou, who by 1994 is more a father to these kids 
than a coach would weaponize all the bad clippings in Pedro's ear while he did his work in the bully. And most managers, they don't hang out in the bullpen with starters, but Alou never missed a Pedro bullpen session, and their connection of trust, it grew stronger and stronger, and it started as a result of these bullpen sessions. Now, Pedro did, didn't disappoint, as he quickly made the Expos fans and media eat their words about the so-called disastrous trade of Delano De Shields. Pedro made 23 starts in 1994, going 11-5 with a 3.42 ERA, 142 strikeouts and 144 and two-thirds innings pitched, a 124 ERA plus, and a 1.11 whip. And that was his first full year as a starter. And look, Pedro did have some command issues that first year in Montreal. He, he would spark brawls with uh, Derek Bell and Reggie Sanders. Uh, he hit Reggie Sanders in the middle of pitching a no-hitter, and for some reason, Reggie Sanders just went ballistic and tried to beat the hell out of him. Um, you know, these guys, they felt like the right-handed pitcher was taking liberties, and they were trying to beat him on purpose. And Pedro always maintained that he never intentionally hit either one of those guys that year. In fact, he was, like I said, he was pitching a, a damn near perfect game when he hit Sanders. So, Philippe Lil, <laughs> he buys a mannequin with a bat to stand in the batter's box as a batter. And he tells Pedro, go ahead, throw the ball. So Pedro throws his first pitch for a strike. But it's, you know, like a get-me-over fastball. And Alou says to him, that's great. Now, throw it as hard as you can. And Pedro remembers reaching back and letting that ball go with all his might. And bang! The ball hits the mannequin in the face. And to this day, Pedro, Pedro chuckles thinking about how that mannequin head was pointing one way looking at him. And after he hit it in the face, it was pointing in the total opposite direction. And Felipe looked at Pedro, and he says, Pedro, what are you doing? <laughs> and Pedro says, I I'm trying to come in on the hitter. I, I have to be able to come inside to be my best. And Alou says, well, how do you hold the ball? And Pedro says, I use a two-seam grip. And Alou says, from now on, I want you to use a four-seam grip. And that should help your control out. And Pedro Martinez, to this day, says that was the moment that it all clicked. Everything made sense to him after that. He figured out that with this four-seam grip on the ball, he could put it anywhere, anytime. And it totally opened his eyes up to being a major league pitcher and what it's going to take to survive in this league. Now, with Ken Hill, Jeff Fasaro, uh, Kirk Reeder, and Pedro, the rotation appeared to be almost as good as the mighty Braves. Now, speaking of the Braves, MLB had restructured their division and playoff format, and, and that was in 1994. And here's the thing about that. Uh, the Montreal Expos, they have to be some of the most unfortunate victims of timing and circumstance that I've ever seen. They run out of time in 1980, missed by one game. They run out of time in 1993. Uh, they missed the playoffs by three games. If the new wild card element was in play in 1993, the Expos would have made the postseason, and they would have had a chance to play Toronto 
and an all-Canadian World Series. Sometimes it's just about timing and circumstance. That could have been very, very possible butterfly effect moment in 1993. And speaking of realignment, the Atlanta Braves, who for some strange reason, they were always in the NL West. Well, they were now moved to a more geographically correct NL East. So while the 94 Expos had high expectations and optimism for the upcoming season, they knew to be the man, you got to beat the man, and the Braves of Atlanta were the man. As opening day arrives, there is talk going all around that a work stoppage could happen this year. But, you know, summer, spring's eternal, opening day. These rumors are dismissed as doomsday scenarios that probably are not going to happen. The Expos still had the best outfield in the National League in 94 in Alou, Grissom, and Walker, as well as, as, well as fourth outfielder Rondell White, who could have been a starter on many teams. Uh, the outfield looked even more crowded at spring training when rookie Cliff Floyd showed up on the scene. And it didn't take long for Floyd and Felipe to read the tea leaves and assess that Floyd's chances of getting uh, substantial outfield play in 1994, it just wasn't going to happen. So Alou asked Floyd, have you ever played first base? To which Floyd replied back, I did a little bit in high school. And Felipe suggests to Floyd that he give it a shot, and the rookie, the rookie eagerly acquiesced. Uh, the Expos started slow in 1994. They went 4-9 uh, in the first 13 games. They were 8.5 behind Atlanta, but they began to heat up a little bit. They won 5 straight before losing to the Dodgers, then they rattled off 6 consecutive wins. The first two months of the uh, season, they were 28-22. and 22. Uh, by, May, by May 11th, the Expos had secured second place. By mid-July, they're passing the Braves. And to a man, that team has said that June 27th, 1994, was the galvanizing moment for the 1994 Expos team. With the Braves barely holding on to a slim margin with the suddenly hot Expos chasing them, Montreal and Atlanta had split the first two games and were now looking at a series rubber match. The Braves were sending their best pitcher on the planet to the bump in Greg Maddox. And, you know, uh, Mad Dog over here, he's in the midst of winning his third Cy Young Award out of four consecutive uh, size. That year, Mad Dog was his usual self, impeccable control, low pinch counts, quick games, paint in the black. 16-6 with a 1.56 ERA, 10 complete games out of 25 starts, a 2.71 ERA plus, and a .90 whip. And the Expos, they literally called Maddox God in their clubhouse. That was his name, God. With each victory, the youngest team in the majors was beginning to get a swagger to their style, but they also had the humility to know that you ain't accomplished nothing until you beat God. After six innings, on June 27th, the game was tied at one apiece in the bottom of the seventh. The Expos were in business. Grissom singles for his third hit off of God that day. He immediately stole second, capitalizing on God's only flaw, really, which was uh, surrendering to stolen bases. Doesn't help that Javi Lopez is behind the plate either. 
And since that was so easy, Grissom just go ahead and stole third for the hell of it. Lou Fraser filling in for Larry Walker drew a walk, and then he immediately stole second base, and I got on second and third. Moise Alou pops out to first for out number one. Darren Fletcher was intentionally walked to load the bases. Will Cardero hits a sack fly to Ryan Klesko out in left. Two outs, and Montreal now leads 2-1. to one. And the next batter is rookie Cliff Floyd, who was mired in an 0-13 slump and took a backwards K from God earlier uh, in that game, an inning earlier, actually. And with the count, 2-2, two two, uh, Javi Lopez calls for a, you know, Mad Dog's money pitch, that bizarre changeup that just, you know, kind of fell off the table right in front of the dish and disappeared. And really, it was a perfect pitch, but somehow, uh, Cliff Floyd, I guess he reached in his uh, <laughs> his little golf club bag there and pulled out the five iron, and he caught that ball. Like he, well, he, like he, like he was teeing off on a par five. I mean, it's crazy. He hit that ball from down around his neck, uh, ankles. And the ball took off like a rocket, slammed high into the right field stands, 400 feet from home plate. And it was at that very moment, the Expos to a man, to this day, know they were the best team in the majors. It brought that team together, and they knew deep down that this was going to be their year. No one could stop them, not even God. The next day, the clubhouse attendants, they told Cliff Lloyd that Maddox tore the clubhouse apart in a rage. By June, the baseball universe was on notice. The, the 1994 Montreal Expos, they're, they're not to be fucked with. What made them so formidable? Well, a few things, actually. First of all, they had a high-powered offense with speed. The, Ex, the Expos had the ability to do more with 10 hits than anyone else that year. Um, as evidenced by the Cliff Floyd story that I just told you. Guys get on beast, they steal two bases. Another, the next guy comes up, steals a base. Uh, sacrifice flies, scores a runner, loads the bases up, walks. Boom. Or, you know, not... Uh, sacrifice flies, scores a guy. Two men on, Cliff Floyd hits three-run homer. With ten hits, they're able to do a lot more than most major league teams because they're manufacturing runs at a high rate. And they're constantly putting battery mates under pressure on the base pass, for sure. The rotation was anchored by 28-year-old Ken Hill and Pedro, the 22-year-old cocky gunslinger. They had a solid middle to end of the rotation and a lights-out bully led by closer John Wetland. The team pitching was first in the LL, uh, 3.65 ERA, third most strikeouts, and they allowed the fewest walks. Uh, They made some shrewd trades, that had built that pitching staff for the most part with the Expos trading for uh, Ken Hill, Pedro Martinez, John Wetland, and John Facero. Their primary starters started 102 of 114 games in 94, and their top 10 pitchers hurled all but 54 and two-thirds innings. Offensively, they were third in the National League in runs scored, second in team batting uh, with an average of 278. Third in OVP with 343, and fourth in slugging at 435. And they were fast. I mean, real fast. First in stolen bases, 137, with a 
50% success rate. Check this out. So, Grissom, Lou Frazier, Will Cordero, Larry Walker, Sean Barry, Cliff Boyd, they combined and went 111 for 132 in stolen base attempts for an 84.1% success rate. They were young, and most of them were hitting their projected prime uh, years together. The Expos had an average age of 26-year-olds, um, two years under the 1994 league average. Only two position players, Randy Milligan and Jeff Gardner, as well as pitcher Jeff Facero, were over the age of 30. The bully was straight fire. John Wetland, the power arm closer, 25 saves, 150 ERA+. And his main core setup and situational arms, Mel Rojas, Tim Scott, Jeff Shaw, Gil Heredia, they were carving opposing batters up. But the main reason for the success, besides Philippe Lowe fundamentals, it was health. All eight of the starting position players played in at least 94 of the 114 games that year. While other teams are grinding through uh, players 26 through 40, the Expos, they're rolling on dubs with their best 25 all year, baby. Uh, no backup position player compiled more than 166 plate appearances in that 114-game season. After Floyd's game-winner versus God, the Expos were unstoppable, playing damn near 700 ball the rest of the season. The club went 19-8 in June, 18-8 in July, and they were 9-2 in August when all of a sudden, the unthinkable happens. After loss to the Pirates, the Cubs were met in the clubhouse by team president and owner, Claude Bouchot, who informed the club that the players had decided to strike to force a new CBA from the owners. And what a conflicting feeling that announcement must have made on these players, you know, who want to represent the players' union. But here's a team that had the rebuild label for years, and here they were, literally on the precipice of greatness and vindictive triumph. And yet again, the Expos, horrible victims of time and circumstance. Again! What was this strike about? Same thing the current fucking strike is about. Money, 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 money. And who gets the bulk of it? These strikes never have anything to do about baseball or the fucking fans. It's always about money. And even the most pessimistic of people could not imagine that the 1994 season at some point wasn't going to return and get to the postseason. The strike in particular was having an adverse effect on small market expos who are trying to secure a stadium deal with this team riding high. The expos had the worst stadium in baseball. It was called the Big O. And like I said, it had a retractable roof that never worked. The city ran out of money and it was just left as it was. And like I said, they called it the Big O, but really people in that that city called her the big O, O-W-E, as in all the money wasted to build her ugly ass. The cash-trapped expos were pitching a downtown stadium 
which realistically would have changed the team's financial fortunes and standings in the haves and have-not world of Major League Baseball. Unfortunately, revenue streams were frozen during the strike. For a team like Montreal, if you ain't making money, you're losing it. And the Expos lost a ton of cash during that strike. The work stoppage canceled 938 games, and it lasted from August 12, 1994 to March 31, 1995. 938 games were lost due to that strike. The pause in play, it crushed the Expos. At you know, who missed out on postseason team bonuses and a $19 million payoff uh, when they would have made it to the World Series. You know, $19 million in 1994 is $32 million in today's economy. The, the Expo's payroll in 1994 was $19 million. When the players returned in spring of 1995, new GM Kevin Malone was uh, given directive that the Expos would be cutting players and adding no payroll. So, in the first two days of spring training, 1995, Montreal let Larry Walker go to free agency without even an offer. Two years later, he was an NL MVP with the Rockies. Veteran ace Ken Hill was moved to St. Louis for Kurt Bullinger, Brian Eversgaard, and Deron Stovall. Trash return. Marquise Grissom was dealt to the Braves for Roberto Kelly, Tony Tarasco, and Esteban Yad. And John Wetland was dealt to New York Yankees for Fernando Seguigano. Never heard of him. Missing out on the postseason bonus money, it crushed the Expos. Kevin Malone estimates that $24 million would have been enough to retain those four players. He also admits that the Expos didn't get fair value on any of those moves, acknowledging that teams basically held them for hostage. And a last-ditch effort to break ground on the new stadium lost momentum. The fans were pissed and saddened by not only losing the 1994 season, but to gut the team uh, two days into spring training was unforgivable. Claude Boucher made one last pitch to get a stadium in downtown Montreal. He approached the governor with the idea of taking the money from the players' taxes to help build a new crib. And it seemed like the governor was on board, Labatz was on board, it looked like this was going to happen. But unexpectedly, two days later, the governor reneged on the deal, saying there was more important issues in Ontario besides baseball. And that was officially the death knell. By 2000, the team stinks. The stadium is literally falling apart. Literally falling apart. Steel grinders are falling from the roof. Major League Baseball would have to take over ownership and accountability for the last two years in their possession. And by the end of the Expo's lifespan, they were playing games in Hiram Bythorn Stadium in Puerto Rico. Eventually, the team would pack their shit, move to D.C., and become the Washington Nationals. The slow death administered to Montreal in 94 and saw a 10-year decline in play as they went 733 and 869 during that span, from 94 to the end of, you know, when they left, 2004. The insult to injury for the Expos fans was not only, you know, what could have been, but watching all these players 
go on to do amazing things in different pe- in different uniforms. Dennis Martinez and Marquis Grissom, they're getting to the World Series. It's hard to watch that. They're watching John Wetland get a ring with the Yankees. That's a gut punch. But Pedro made even the most hardcore Expos fans cry in their labats. And Poutine went after a breaking uh, 86-year curse with the Red Sox in 04. Pedro said on live TV that he shares this ring with the fans of Montreal who no longer have a baseball team. The Montreal Canadiens hockey team, they wound up buying the rights to Yuppie, the Expos mascot. And Yuppie was just another crazy, weird facet of the Expos that I loved. He was bubbly. He was orange. He's shaped like a big pear. I don't know what he is. Is he a lumberjack? I don't know what this guy is. But he was great. And uh, the Montreal Canadiens would buy Yuppie. So he now is the official mascot of the Habs. If you look in the the rafter of Center Bell Arena, you will see 24 championship banners along with um, a banner that hangs in Montreal Expos blue and has the name and uniform number of four Expos legends. Rusty Staub, Andre Dawson, Tim Raines, and the kid, Gary Carter. And Gary Carter, who in 1992, he did return to the Expos, and in his last at-bat, he hit an RBI double over his former teammate Andre Dawson's head, and it drove in the eventual game winner. When I think of the Expos, I think of many things that make me smile. But it all goes back to that young talent. And I defy anyone to tell me a team that has developed the quality of young players that Montreal did in a 37-year span. I'll put anybody's 37-year span against the Montreal Expos. We're talking top-shelf liquor. You know, guys like Vladimir Guerrero, Randy Johnson, Tim Raines, Gary Carter, Andre Dawson, Larry Walker, Pedro Martinez. That's top-shelf liquor, baby. Then you have that, like, next tier of homegrown kush that they produce. Guys like Moise Alou, Delano DeShields, Marquise Grissom, John Wetland, Steve Rogers, Warren Cromartie. That 1994 team was so stacked with young talent. Um, every starting player on that team, listen to this, every starting player on that team, with the exception of third baseman Sean Barry and shortstop Mike Lansom, who were two fine players, by the way, every single player on that roster played in at least one all-star game, and that includes the starting rotation that they had. Every single one of those guys that started on that team had played in at least one All-Star game. And I asked a local high school baseball player down here yesterday if he had ever heard of the Montreal Expos, and he said, no, who are they? And it really stunned and it really disappointed me as I realized that a whole generation of kids have missed out on a team. I mean, a team that I loved so much when I was his age. It just, they, he didn't know anything about it. I had to sit down and tell him. He, 
He's very interested. He couldn't wait for the show to come out. So, here it is, Benny. There it is, brother. I told you all about it. So, I think that's where we're going to end today. If you want to learn more about the Expos, there's a couple books that I can recommend. Uh, 1979, The Expos' First Great Season by Norm King. There's also a great book about their farm system, The Expos in Their Prime by Alan Userap. There's also a, a movie about Bill Spaceman Lee. It's called The Wrong Stuff. It's, uh, Bill Lee is played by Justin Mel. That's available for download on Crackle. And I also have my one-on-one -on -one interview with Bill Lee, Bill Spaceman Lee on uh, my Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network YouTube page if you want to go check that out. Please remember to like, comment, follow, rate me on Apple and Spotify as you see fit. And next week's show... It's going to be about the king and their court, which is a story about Eddie Fainer and his three teammates who would barnstorm around the country and beating softball teams with only four guys. I can't wait to present that to you, but look, look, look. That's another story for another pod. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch and they're looking bored, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and good night.